0: And if we really know our stuff, then then we should give the same intervention when the data points line up the same way every time. Now that may not be the correct intervention, that's about program evaluation and auditing, but at least we know our methods so well that when data points line up, they should give a specific intervention. But because the data is so complex, that's where decision trees
1: come in. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So in this episode of the podcast, we have Ernie Reimer and some of you may know the name from a roundtable that we had a couple of weeks ago with JB Marin where we had a little chat around force velocity profiling. And mainly because of my inadequacies, there was a few gaps in that roundtable that we didn't I didn't ask to be plugged and hence me getting Ernie back on the podcast to plug them. And one thing that came up was sprint modeling and how we can use sprint modeling to be able to identify areas where athletes need to improve. And then we have a little chat around how we can utilize decision trees to be able to standardise those interventions that come off the back of sprint modelling and how we go about that, the protocols we can use and all that kind of stuff to help it easier for coaches to understand where their athletes need to be, where athletes' training needs to focus. So this is a super, super interesting episode for anyone, sports scientists, strength and conditioning coaches, who want to understand where their athletes need to improve when it comes to speed training. This episode of the Pacey Performance podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode is Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? So for pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure-validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximise athletic potential like never before. Widely used by top-flight rugby, football, cricket and motorsports teams already in post-game changing rooms, away game travel, hotels or at home, Hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. To find out how Hydro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge, visit Hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So, With offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022 Play will be hosting their first UK Lab of the Year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen So without further ado, over to the episode with Ernie. Ernie Reimer, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming on. You joined us for a roundtable a couple of weeks ago with with JB, JB Marin, and we spoke about force velocity profiling, and then based off the back of that, it was a case of, I've got to get you on to talk about this kind of stuff in more detail and, and other things as well. But it's a pleasure to have you. And I'm, I'm really excited to get you on and dive into the stuff that, firstly, you're passionate about, which is exciting to me that you're bringing uh, topics that, that you're really excited about. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Ernie, would you mind just giving us a brief background on you? And then we can dive into the stuff that we've got planned.
0: Sure. Well, I'll start with my current role and then maybe I'll work backwards a little bit. And before I jump into that, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. I've always watched your podcast and you've had some great speakers on here. So it's it's a true honor for you to invite me to be on. And it was also an honor to be on with JB a few weeks ago. Currently, I'm the director of sports science for University of Louisville athletics department, and this is about my 10th year in my career as a sports scientist. I'm also a co-founder and chief science officer of a, a startup company. It's a strength conditioning management software, and so that's been a pretty cool venture as a side hustle. Just working backward a little bit, I've been here for about a year and a half, and previous to this position, I was the director of sports science at University of Utah Athletics, and I was there from 2013 to 2021. Prior to that, I was at US ski and snowboard in Park City. So that's what brought me to Utah. I was there for six years, went through one Olympic games in Vancouver. And my first job was a strength conditioning specialist at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. That's where I got my bachelor's degree, and my master's degree and my, my undergrad degree was in exercise science and my master's was in education. And then when I moved on to University of Utah, I pursued a PhD in exercise physiology.
1: Awesome, awesome. Well, I think we're right. I reckon we dive right in. We I think we dive right in, and like I said at the start, one thing that you spoke about with JB was the force velocity profiling side of things, but I wanted to kind of open that up to sprint profiling and modelling as a as a wider topic, and just get you to give us a bit more detail on on what options we've got because it's not all about just force velocity profiling. There's other options out there for us to better understand where our athletes are at and how we can go about creating interventions off the back of that. And we'll get on to the interventions later. But what options have we got when it comes to profiling our athletes for, for speed, for sprinting? Right.
0: So there's obviously a lot of different ways that you can assess sprinting. So we can discuss that if you'd like. But for me, I, I think the the basis and the thing that I'm really interested in is to model sprint performance. Using a nonlinear regression and because when you use this, this is the basis and the start of the force velocity profiling, but there's a lot of additional opportunities that could come from that model in and of itself and I I think the key is to be able to collect data that would enable you to perform that regression model and if you can get that then it really opens up a lot of doors. And it it could lead us to thinking about our sprint assessments in a different way. So some of the ways that you can collect that data, obviously the the most common method would be timing gates. And I've surveyed different audiences before to just ask them what type, how do you assess sprints? And over and over again, the audiences will say that timing gates is the number one way that they assess sprints. Aside from stopwatches, timing gates may be one of the most cost-effective strategies to assess sprints because, uh, but but it's not that cheap because if you just buy one set of timing gates and all you have is a start and a stop time, then you won't really be able to model that, uh, that acceleration curve. So you do need to get a timing gate system that allows you to get multiple splits and from that you can model the data for that, uh, that mono-exponential function for acceleration. So it's, it's somewhat cost-effective, but where I think it could be going is wearable technology. It's pretty common for major team sports and sport organizations to have wearable tech now. And just recently, JB and, and one of his researchers, uh, I believe her, I'd have to look up her name, but they published a, sto- a study late in 2022 where they successfully use wearable technology to model the force velocity profile of athletes. And to do that, you have to carry out the nonlinear regression function first. If we get to a point, and some of our primary wearable tech companies, hint, hint, not mentioning any names, so if we can get to that point, where we can have a group of athletes just line up with their wearable tech since everyone already has it, and we can have them perform a sprint, and then we can use that to model that, that acceleration function. There's going to be a, a potential overhaul on how we assess sprints, because I, I believe that a lot of the lasers and the radars, the wires, the timing gates will all disappear if we can make sprint assessment easy using wearable tech.
1: Was that Pauline? Was it Pauline Clavel, the author? Yeah, since
0: you, since you mentioned it, I believe it was Pauline. That actually. That about- was the study. And JB. was nice enough to send that study
1: to me ahead of print to be able to evaluate that. What a legend he's such a good guy. But just just for the, for the people that for the people that heard nonlinear regression and got whipped back to their undergrad and got hot and sweaty like i just did um would you mind just giving us a, a brief overview of what that is what that looks like sure so with nonlinear regression I, I think the best way to describe this
0: would be to start with a straight line and the goal is we, what we do is we do least squares regression and so when you look at a straight line i think everyone has heard y equals mx plus b right so y is the outcome measure that you're trying to determine M is the slope of that line, and B is the y-intercept. And so when we use least squares regression, the goal is to take the measured data points and try to find a line of best fit that would that would result in a sum of residuals that is as small as possible. So a residual is the the difference between the actual measured point and that of the predicted line. So geometrically, if you square that residual, it would make a a square on your 2D XY plane. And the goal is to manipulate the slope of that line and that Y-intercept as much as possible to get those squared residuals as small as possible when you add them all up. And we can do this arithmetically using arithmetic for a straight line. But with nonlinear regression, we use computers. When we convert from a straight line to nonlinear regression, we are now dealing with two different parameters. One of them is the curvature constant, which in sprinting we refer to as tau, which is like your acceleration time constant. And the other one would be the asymptote. So that, that curvature constant would be Equivalent to the slope in a straight line, whereas that asymptote is equivalent to the y intercept. So, just to be clear, the asymptote is a straight line that runs across, and your nonlinear, your mono exponential function will curve and it'll approach that asymptote, but it'll go on to infinity without ever actually touching the asymptote. It's not as easy to do this using arithmetic, so we use computers and they do thousands and thousands of iterations changing tau and changing the asymptote until you can reduce the sum of squared error term as low as possible. And this is the basis for what J.B. Morin has done in their Microsoft Excel spreadsheets that are readily available, but others have already published similar tools. Like in R, you can find tools in Python and now software products have started to release their own versions where they would allow for sprint modeling to occur. Just so you know though, the different software products that are out there who allow for sprint modeling and this mono exponential function, all they're doing is least squares regression. So if you want to know what's under the what's under the hood or what's in the black box, they've just basically applied a some type of function to their software code that allows them to do least squares non-linear regression
1: so we've collected the data that is enabling us to do that we've plugged it into JB spreadsheet or something similar and we we get that that output what then can we do to help us under better understand where our athletes are at and then we'll move on to the interventions soon but how, where do we go from there we've got the data where do we go
0: yeah I, I'm so happy you asked that because I, I think that sometimes we might look at sprint performance almost through a pretty narrow lens. and it first of all, can we all agree that sprinting is really important? Do we actually agree that that's important for team sports and other explosive sports?
1: We agree. okay.
0: so as long as
1: as long as you we and I can with agree that. here or now, so we're all good. okay
0: good. So let it be written, let it be heard, let it be said. We agree that sprint performance is really important. So if we agree on that, then, you know, traditionally, when you look at research, trying to associate sprint performance with on-field performance, most of that is just used like a final sprint time. Some people have started to dive in only recently, maybe looking at peak velocity or some of those force and velocity variables. But traditionally, when we look at sprint performance and its relationship to performance, we've only looked at like the final time at what's your 10 meter sprint. What's your 40 meter sprint in America? That would be 40 yard sprint. And how does that relate to some on-field measures? And so the research isn't actually that strong there and that the correlations actually aren't that strong either. But I think that in the practical setting, we are looking at, multitude of different sprint variables, a whole array of sprint variables, but the science and the research hasn't really caught up to start trying to find the relationships between those and on-field performance. And that's really interesting because every fan, every performance professional, every athlete knows, as you and I just agreed, that sprinting is performance. Sprinting is uh, highly... Related to performance. So what if you had the ability to very accurately model someone's acceleration? Where you could model their velocity over time. You can convert that into velocity over distance if you want to know how fast someone ran over a given distance. So what if everyone in your sport performed the same sprint assessment? What would you do with that? How how would you use that data now to start looking at different KPIs that might relate to those to those athletes in, in their sport? So I might I might just throw this at you real quick, Rob. Choose a sport, maybe a sport that I don't know anything about. Mm. Uh, you, you must know that I I'm I've been in the United States my whole life and I work with American mainstream sports like football and basketball and baseball. So why don't you choose a sport that I might not know anything about? And then let's let's actually just break this down and I'm going to we're gonna go through a little question and answer because I think that's exactly what the audience can do.
1: Of course. Let's go with soccer, let's go with football. You could have guessed.
0: Yeah, I, I could have guessed. So talk to me about let's break this down to the different positions on the field. Why don't you share some of those positions with me?
1: Okay, so we've got central defenders. That comes first, because that was that was me. Uh, A long time ago. Um, We've got our fullbacks. We've got our... This is super, super simple. We've got our central midfielders. We've got our wingers. And we've got our strikers. There's nuances in those, but that's the basics. And you obviously have keepers, too. And the goalkeepers. You call them goalies or keepers? Both. Interchangeable. Okay.
0: We won't break down every one of these positions, but now my, my challenge for you is let's take, let's maybe look at two extremes. Let's look at the keepers, and then let's look at a another position group on the field because obviously their ability to accelerate is going to be a lot different. So let's compare, why don't you tell me what would be valuable from a sprint or an acceleration standpoint for a keeper versus another position of your choice, maybe that central defender that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, of course. So, goalkeeper, probably sprinting is probably considered the least important, I would guess, the least important thing that they do. However, anything, any sprinting that they do will be, will be short in distance, will be crucial, because any action that they partake in, they're the last line of defence, so it's going to be with um, high risk, I guess. But anything, they're not going to sprint. Very rarely would they sprint over a couple of meters. Okay.
0: All right. So let's start there, and then we'll switch gears to central defender. So if I heard correctly, you mentioned that sprinting may be one of the less important things they do. But when they do, maximal acceleration over a short distance is going to be really important. So now what if your entire soccer team perform the same sprint. Let's say everyone did a 40 meter sprint and we use splits or another method so that we could derive that mono exponential function for every one of those. How convenient would it be now to manipulate that velocity and time data and perhaps convert it to distance and time? So what if you took your keepers and said how much time would it take for them to get, say seven meters, a random number that you didn't get a split on. Or you could reverse it and say how far they could they go in one and a half seconds. I'm not sure what those KPIs would be. You, the practitioner can decide that, but if you have that instantaneous data from your very reliable function, you can now derive very specific KPIs you think might relate to that goalie's performance to be able to see, okay, if this person can get an extra meter or an extra meter and a half or two meters in the same amount of time as another one, could that actually relate to their success in their range as a keeper? Now, let's pretend your central defenders performed that same sprint and we use the data to perform the mono-exponential function, their acceleration curve, what type of sprint variables would be important for that central defender, which might be a little bit different than the keeper?
1: Yeah, so I would guess, not that I I know specifically in the data, but I would guess that the majority of sprints that a central defender will do will be from a moving start, from a rolling start. They will do um, lots of short accelerations Um, because they're going to be reactive off the strike that they're marking. Um, Maybe, I would guess they would rarely get into um, max velocity. Uh, It'd all be 10 meters, 15 meters, I would guess. Yeah.
0: Using the same function from a moving start, you could pick any point in that acceleration and say, what is your what is your time interval or what is your change in velocity from this point in the sprint to that point in the sprint so if you wanted to have a five a five meter run in you could you could take your function even if you didn't have a five meter split because it's instantaneous data and you might say what is their change in velocity from five meters to 15 meters you could also get the split time you could you could with a instantaneous data using that function, you can say, what's the split time from 7.8 meters to 21.6 meters? And you get a split time for that interval. And that's the beauty in this model, is you can start to come up with your own KPIs. So in a way, you could have everyone write that, run that same sprint. Now there are nuances, because there are some flying sprint techniques where you wouldn't have someone maximally accelerate into the the interval of interest that you might be timing, but assuming that in this case you're going to just do a maximal acceleration and and you might want to have some flying intervals or understand what their performance is when they've already had a runway. You You can use that same exact function from that. As far as those short accelerations, that's similar to that conversation that we discussed with the keepers. Perhaps you want to look at the same KPIs just so you can truly understand the difference in human performance from one position group like the keepers to those central defenders. So maybe you use the same KPIs there. But with max velocity, that that would be fairly simple because you would use the terminal velocity at the end of the sprint. Like what is the peak velocity that you achieved? And with more research, we may actually be able to extrapolate a little bit beyond to understand maybe what their max velocity capability would be. To give an example on that, one thing that we did, my interns helped me. I have smart interns, a lot smarter than me. We took data from the IAAF biomechanics reports of elite sprinters, and those provide 10 meter splits for the entire 100 meter performance. And we took that data and we, We tried to develop our own regression equations to understand that if someone doesn't sprint far enough to fully accelerate to peak velocity, could we extrapolate and start to estimate what their peak velocity may be beyond terminal velocity in a sprint? A lot of times in sport, we won't do sprint assessments for long enough distance in order to see what their true peak velocity is. And that's because we don't want to tear a hamstring and things like that, which may not be as big of an issue in soccer because soccer does a lot of high-speed sprinting as a anecdote to prevent hamstrings injuries. Right. But in some sports in America, like football and major league baseball and stuff, they won't let them sprint as far as they need to, to hit peak velocity. Nevertheless, if you had a long enough sprint, you can take terminal velocity and you can make those comparisons or you can possibly develop some, some models to extrapolate beyond. The point in all of this is that what you've just done is you've helped educate me on a sport that I haven't had a lot of involvement working in. And everyone just did the same sprint assessment. We had some splits or another another way to capture the data we need to perform that Least squares nonlinear regression, and from that same sprint, we have derived different KPIs for different position groups. And now, maybe that opens up the door for better performance profiling and research to identify which sprint performance measures may actually relate to on field performance. Now, I might add for a different sport, maybe some of those collision based sports, perhaps momentum is interesting, like in rugby or American football. You may be interested in how much momentum different players have after a given distance of maximal acceleration. And that and all you would have to do is take that instantaneous velocity measure and multiply it by their body weight, and you would have a momentum measure. And so that, that could be an additional layer to starting to develop your own sport-specific, position-specific KPIs that may actually relate to on-field performance.
1: So part one was all about sprint modeling. Part two, we have a little chat around strategic periodization and then decision trees. So a really, really interesting part two coming up with Ernie. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics... And an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience kitman labs is leading the evolution of sports performance partnering with over 150 elite teams across the nfl nhl mlb afl epl and championship rugby Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. Also sponsoring this episode is Rewire Fitness. While we all know it's important to develop athletes' mental skills, it's often challenging for coaches to figure out how to apply these strategies. The Rewire Fitness is the ultimate coaching solution for helping athletes develop their mental fitness and gain an advantage over competition. The platform integrates evidence-based tools backed by neuroscience and sports psychology, as well as protocols used by NASA and the Navy SEALs to help athletes enhance mental performance and improve readiness, recovery, and resilience. With daily insights into each athlete's readiness, you can identify trends, prevent overtraining and make informed recommendations with ease, resulting in improved team performance. And they have the data to back it up. Typically, their users reduce their self-related stress by 70% Feel 30% more focused and feel 30% more ready for performance with just five to 10 minutes of use each day. By implementing Rewire in your coaching practice, you can also support a culture of health and wellness, proactively working to prevent athlete burnout and overtraining. Prioritizing mental wellness and performance is key to success of any team and Rewire Fitness is the solution to achieve it. Learn more and schedule a demo at rewirefitness.app forward slash pacey and now back to the episode with ernie interesting so good and i think that that going through that example has definitely taken people through that the sport that they work in if it's soccer or or, or another um, another sport so one thing we spoke about when we when we emailed back and forth about the discussion points that we were going to talk through today you'd shared with me a well some resources about decision trees and this is something that I actually forgot to put in there, but I'm definitely leveraging and sticking that back in there now. How can we leverage decision trees to help us take what you've just described so eloquently over the last 20 minutes and filter people into different interventions based on the data that we've collected?
0: Right, right. Thanks for asking that. And this is a really interesting topic for me because since the beginning of my career, Decision trees, we didn't call it that 20 years ago, but decision trees are this idea where you assess athletes and you have different thresholds or different indicators that would cause them to have a different intervention because of that. Now, just to delineate from decision tree terminology that has emerged because of machine learning, there there's decision tree technique in machine learning, and that's not exactly what we're talking about. What we're talking about now with decision trees is that you, you, you go through, you, you have a set of data, and then you branch off and you start to ask these questions. Do you hit this threshold or do you not? And if you do, then you branch out and you ask another question until you end with the, that final bucket, as people might call it. But that final bucket is this new intervention. And this is something that I've, I was introduced to very early in my career. So I've always looked at ways to assess athletes and then use that data to try to identify what they need to maximize their performance and from a, from a training standpoint. Now, the, here's the problem that I've observed in my career. Early on in my career, we didn't collect as much data on athletes as we do now. And with technology and everything else, we have so many data points. For instance, there was one point in my career using force plates when we kind of just looked at peak velocity, peak power, peak force, and jump height. And now there's companies out there, I believe one company, if you do a counter movement jump, you get maybe 56 variables from a single jump, for goodness sakes. And then there's another company out there who might give you close to 200 variables from a single counter movement jump, that's okay. There's, there's, va- there's some value in those v- variables. The point is, is we just have so much more data that we're dealing with. I, I don't think that any of us are smart enough to look at a, say, a dashboard of data, a complex dashboard of data with all these variables and to be able to say, this is what you need to be focused on as an athlete. In my experience, trying to look at dashboards and I've caught myself where at one point, this is how I was I was looking at the data and, and making recommendations to the athlete. And then maybe one to two years later, I caught myself making a contradiction to what I was recommending like just a year or two before. And I recognize this because a lot of times when I look, interpret data visually, I'll often write what I observe and I'll write what I recommend the action would be. And I've been able to compare my notes given to athletes the same type of sport going, huh, I feel like I've contradicted myself. And so sometimes data can confuse us. And I've done this before. I've taken a dashboard with different variables and I've surveyed audiences and said, based on what you see, what should this athlete's greatest training priorities should be? They look at it, they rate it. Ten minutes goes by. The only thing I do is I just rotate or change the position of the variables and I ask the same question to the same audience and they all come up with completely different answers and only 10 minutes has lapsed of us having a conversation in between. That's really risky. I think that's really dangerous in, in how we interpret data and, and try to make recommendations to our athletes because we need to know our stuff and if we really know our stuff, then, dis, then we should give the same intervention when the data points line up the same way every time. Now that may not be the correct intervention, that's about program evaluation and auditing, but at least we know our methods so well that when data points line up, they should give a specific intervention. But because the data is so complex, that's where decision trees come in. And the idea is to branch from your data set using single data points or combinations of data points and help those athletes branch off into different interventions.
1: Can you give a couple of examples or even just one example, Ernie, of of this in action? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So with, like, I'll give an example, and I'm not sure how valid this is, but I'll I'll give an example in sprinting since we were just talking about that. What we will talk about is um, this is something, a decision tree I helped create for, the women's sprint team at uh, on the track team at one of my previous institutions. And the first question that we wanted to ask from the force velocity profiling as well as the sprint profiling was, does the athlete continue to accelerate past 45 meters or not? And even though the, the sprint model that we derived did not come from a full 45 meter sprint, using the method I described where we developed a regression equation from the elite sprinters. Uh, We, we use that data and applied that. So we could estimate would this athlete, this female athlete continue to accelerate past 45 meters. You'll, you'll notice that I said 45 meters and these are female sprinters. Most of the research on elite sprinting performance when they would hit peak velocity in a sprint is on male sprinters there's not a lot of research on female elite sprinters on how far they will run before they hit peak velocity. And once again, we helped estimate that from the IAAF biomechanics reports. And we took the data from the elite women sprinters and we started to estimate using modeling where they might hit their peak velocity during sprinting. And for our level of sprinter at our institution, we felt that 45 meters was an appropriate target so if, if they didn't continue to accelerate or we estimated that they would not continue to accelerate through 45 meters, then that would mean that we want to still focus on some different strategies that can improve their acceleration. And that might be what the track coach would do on track. Now to go just one step for, for further with the force velocity profile, and this is when I was just getting into it, what we would add. So now we have this idea this athlete needs to focus on acceleration on track, or now maybe they can focus on trying to improve top speed or maybe their speed endurance toward the end of that event if, they, if they're if they already accelerating um, past that point. But we know that if they're not, if they're hitting top speed too early, then likely the fatigue toward the end of the sprint is going to happen earlier and they're going to have greater and greater um drop off by the end of that sprint. So you really want them to have that long distance acceleration because once you hit that peak velocity, you start to drop off. Now, from the force velocity variables, we don't really know. We don't really know. And at that time, we especially didn't know like what your thresholds should be with the force and velocity interactions. So what, and we have this fantasy that if you have like a low force value, but a high velocity value, then maybe you can improve performance by holding velocity fixed and trying to improve force. Or and vice versa, if you have a high force, theoretical peak force, and a low uh, th- theoretical peak velocity, if you can somehow hold that theoretical peak force there and then increase that velocity, then that, that can improve sprint performance. So we have this, this fantasy, but we don't actually know what the threshold should be and what the cutoffs are. So the way I approached this was I took the normative data for the group and I divided it and, you know, I created a normal distribution and I divided it into tertials so that I could have cutoff points that represented the cutoff between the bottom tertile and, and, and the central tendency, and then a cutoff point from the, the upper range of the central tendency and the final tertile. So that's how I created those thresholds, arbitrarily, was just using the normative data. And I looked at the interactions between the athletes. So if one athlete was in the higher ranges, say in the, in the third tertile for theoretical peak force, but she was also in the lowest tertile for theoretical peak velocity, then from my perspective, that might mean that in the weight room, some training methods that promote greater velocity of shortening of the muscles that might be beneficial toward the athlete, and maybe there's some on-track measures there. So we would go from acceleration, 45 meters, but then we would look at the interactions between the theoretical peak force and theoretical peak velocity using threat tertials as our cutoff points to help make logical decisions about what type of training the athlete should have. And our And in that model, what we had thought about was maybe a high force so maximum strength type program, just trying to increase your relative strength newtons per kilogram. And so training methods in the, in the weight room might be able to elicit that. And We could talk to the strength conditioning experts out there about how to do that. And then maybe on the other extreme would be a high velocity type training program that um, would improve your ability to just accelerate your center of mass at greater velocities through greater muscle shortening velocity, or maybe a balance program that might be a a combination of both to try to potentially improve your relative power. So that, that's how we kind of did that decision tree. But the beauty in it was that we had very, like, like we had very descriptive indicators on how we wanted to do that. So we had the first question and that branches the athletes in, and then we have another set of questions and those thresholds or those combinations of the data would allow us to branch those athletes into different categories. Now, if we were to train the athletes, we can audit and evaluate our results to find out if our methods are actually eliciting the response that we want. The main point is is that we're not getting lost in the data because we're funneling the data into a decision tree that we've defined, and then that decision tree is making recommendations about how we should train the athletes. Let's train the athletes. Let's evaluate whether those different types of training programs elicit the responses that we want. If they do, and that's the fantasy that they do, then you've got a really good methodology. If you don't, and usually I promise you, if you start to audit your training programs, they don't always elicit the responses that you think they will. It's time for you to go back to the drawing board and try to understand why and start tweaking those programs to get those programs to elicit the responses you seek.
1: So the, the the overarching theme to in, to introduce a decision tree was to standardize the intervention that was gained gained off the back of the data that's the, that's the overall premise of the decision tree i I would say so in
0: and to standardize it and to just be really specific in in being able to identify the individual needs of the athlete. For sure. I love how
1: you sum that up. Okay. (laughs) I'm my simpleton brain. Could you could you see the the clogs the the, sorry the cogs ticking um to 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 get my head around that? But that, that that sounds super interesting. My final question on this, Ernie, was what kind of program software do we need to create those decision trees? I guess you don't need anything, but how can we make that process easier or how can practitioners make that process as easy as possible for themselves
0: yeah for sure so i've always used just microsoft excel and basic logic to do this and 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 so i think most people who can do some form of coding can have been exposed to your traditional if and or type logic and a lot of times decision trees are just if they are greater than or equal to this, or if this is true, then do that. And now you, that can be a new question, uh, if this or, or and or that, do this. And so I, I would say that basic logic is the premise of all of it, but you do need to know what your assessments are. You, de- you do need to know what your, your benchmarks may be for those assessments. You have to conceptualize how multiple data points might interact with each other. So the the coding can become quite complex, but the the true basis of it is that basic logic. Now, if you have a good understanding of basic logic, you can apply that in different types of stat languages like R and Python or software development language. Now, not to self promote, but I will, I, I won't name my company, but one thing that we've done is we've made user-defined decision tree po- decision trees possible to all with no code logic. Once you have your data points, if you know what your thresholds are, we have plain language where you literally will create your decision trees using sentences. So if acceleration uh, to 45 meters is equal to no that they don't, then... Um, That's the first criteria and also if this and if this and it's all just plain uh, plain language and so you don't have to learn how to equals if parentheses and all the different little nuances and coding languages. So we just you just speak sentences this and this and this and this all have to be true and they're going to get bucketed in to this category. And if you want to you can attach a training intervention to that category. So that's one thing that I'm really proud to offer to the industry, because I'm telling you, Rob, I can't tell you, there's been so many times in my career where the more and more data you have, the more you get lost and confused by the data. So these decision trees just allow you to own what you're doing. It also forces you to think about the data too, because the best models use the fewest number of predictors. So if you have a big, messy model with a lot of data, likely you haven't made sense of it yet. But decision trees
1: can help you do that. Interesting. Super, super interesting. Right. One thing I want, and then just change tack completely. And one resource that you sent over to me as we as we prepped for this together, which was the, the interaction on the preparation for this was, was really cool. So I, I really appreciate your input. And one thing that you sent me was uh, a presentation on strategic periodization, which feeds into a something that I was I can't remember who I spoke to about. I think it might have been Martin uh, Bushai, who was who was grading opposition and then using that to make decisions on selections, on training, and all that kind of thing. Which kind of is similar to strategic periodization as as you described it, but. I think I found it really interesting. I thought it was definitely worth having a little chat around. So from your perspective, what is strategic periodization and how does it work? The definition for strategic periodization would be the intentional
0: peaking for matches or events of perceived greatest priority or difficulty. Now, just to be clear, strategic periodization, that, that term isn't used as often as another term called tactical periodization. In a paper by Sam Robertson and David Joyce published in 2018. right there in the introduction, they talked about how they had done a match difficulty index in their paper in their, the publication by the same two in 2015. And at that point, they, they had mentioned strategic periodization and in parentheses, they referred to it as formally referred to as tactical periodization. Now, Sam Robertson and David Joyce are pretty smart guys. And I'm going to trust when they put in parentheses strategic periodization, parentheses formally tactical periodization, without any explanation anywhere on why they've changed the name. David will be in town in about two weeks, so I'm going to ask him. But I think the reason why the name was changed We'll find out is because tactical periodization is there. There's this whole realm of tactical periodization that is more about how sport coaches, not the performance professional, but how the, how the actual technical coaches design practices from a technical and a tactical or pedagogical standpoint in order to make sure those athletes are, those players are ready to execute their game plan on match day. Whereas I think strategic periodization is this idea of intentional peaking for matches and events, of perceived greatest priority and difficulty. So now it becomes more on the, the interdisciplinary support team side and how they interact to understand the opponents that they have in order to prioritize different opponents or know when you can get away with extra training load and playing an opponent when you're a little bit more fatigued or knowing when you really got to be firing on all cylinders. And I, that that's what, you know, brief definition, long explanation, back to the brief definition.
1: It was, I mentioned Martin and I don't, it, it wasn't Martin. It was actually Sam because he'd written the paper and we discussed this in a, in a podcast four or five years ago. So yeah, it was, um, It must have been Sam, which is really interesting. And I think from a sports scientist point of view, and I don't know if this rings true with how you perceive sports scientists out there may look at strategic periodization, and they may think, well, if we're making calls on selections based on the strength of the opponent and other things, but the strength of the opponent, that's beyond me. That's beyond my pay grade. That's for coaches, head coaches to make a call on. But is this, is this relevant to the sports scientist? Can they, what can they do within this strategic periodization model to help the coaches in that process?
0: Good question. As a sports scientist, I haven't made a lot of judgment on selections and things like that. But using the strategic periodization framework, which really comes down to first understanding opponent strength, you, know, you you want to really understand your opponent's strength or the match difficulty and, and that that's important. but when you start to look at that if if there's certain opponents that you perceive, hey, we have a shot at beating these is there, we're the underdog or this is going to be this is going to be a battle for top position in the table, then you want to work backwards from that and really understand the different scenarios and factors that may be at play. So we have two types of factors when we think about strategic periodization. And this again comes from the work by Robertson and Joyce. So my whole approach to strategic periodization started with one paper in 2018 by Sam and David. And then we've kind of developed our, our model on this and there's not a lot of research on it. But we start with the fixed factors. And the fixed factors are all the things you know about the opponent and about the match that aren't going to change. So some examples might be scenario. Some, in some sports, you might have two matches in a week, a Thursday and a Saturday match, right? So that, that would be a, cer- a certain scenario. Location, home, away. Time that the match will be played, time of day. The surface you might play on potential acute differences in altitude, that altitude's not going to change, the number of days of preparation you will have for that opponent from from your last match, now I'll focus in on that opponent, maybe that difference in prep days between yourself and the other opponent, your match density at that time, maybe the number of weeks you've had since a break in competition, the day of the week that the, the competition may occur. Most of these things aren't going to change. That you would consider those fixed factors. Dynamic factors are those things that are going to change from uh, as the season goes on. Uh, opponent strength may change. Last year, you might've had an opponent that wasn't as strong, and they're stronger this, than expected this year. That might change. The weather is constantly changing. So humidity, temperature, precipitation, those issues are constantly changing. And so, so you have to look at some of those, those factors a little bit closer to competition. Uh, other options with uh, other dynamic factors might be, um, another environmental factor would be solar exposure or sun sun exposure, because that can affect core temperature. So if you have a hot human environment and you're in the shade, it's not going to affect you as much as if you're in a hot human environment and the sun's, like shining directly on you. Those factors matter and your interventions that could go into that also matter. Other ones might be player availability, who, who's hurt, who's not on our team and their team. Those things change as the season goes on. And so with strategic periodization that the process starts with using the fixed factors to plan out your entire season. And try to, in light of that opponent's strength and try to understand where you have opportunities to maybe give yourself an advantage over an opponent or where you may have situations where you may be at a disadvantage and how do we address that? So in our real life setting here at my current institution with one of our programs, they don't start their preseason camp until mid-January. But by December 1st, and we've done this two years in a row now, this is my second year here. The coaches have already provided us their estimation of match uh, difficulty, the opponent's strength. And then we as the, the health and performance team have gone through literally every single day of the season, all the way out to May. And we've made recommendations to the coaches about days of practice, days on and off projections on maybe the loading schemes, nutritional interventions, recovery interventions, maybe adding extra days off here and there. We've mapped the entire Season on December 1st, and we haven't even started preseason camp yet. Then what we do right now, and this is happening as we speak, that's the first time we plan the season. Now, so every week is planned. Every opponent, every match is planned. We, we know what we're going to do. The week before, we, we meet every week, and it's, as part of that meeting, before we get to this week, we look ahead. Hey, let's just look at next week one more time in light of the dynamic factors things have changed so next week's schedule may need to change again a little bit because things are closer so that's the second time we've planned next week based on our long-term strategy so a couple months before we're done the whole year then the week before now the week of finally we spend the the about half of our meeting time looking at this week putting the magnifying glass on on it even closer and going okay Here we are, this week is here. Are there any other factors at play that we need to consider? Any small micro adjustments that we need to make this week to give ourselves the greatest chance of success? And we put those in place for the rest of the week to give us the best chance of success. And that's our model. So the issue with all of this is that strategic periodization, and the research might suggest this too, it's all about planning, it's all about peaking for opponents of greatest perceived priority or strength, right? But what about the other side? The problem with all this is how do you actually evaluate whether or not your your methods are working or not?
1: So the question is, Ernie, how
0: do you go about that? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the table on you. How would you okay. go about it? How would you evaluate your methods against outcome?
1: Well, it's interesting because the outcome of a game, whatever sport you play, the score, win, lose, or draw. But then it becomes deeper than that because you may draw, but there may be lots of positives within the the performance that give you encouragement to take forwards. So I suppose it's identifying what they were. But from my experience, because of emotion that goes in, sport people get carried away certain coaches head coaches everyone gets carried away when looking at the scoreboard so I suppose it's identifying the positives and the negatives that came out of each game to evaluate whether that was a we prepared in the right way because of the outcomes that we've identified or things can change I don't know if that answers the question but that's from me trying to get my head around it it and this is really critical
0: to evaluate your team's outcome and you you've what it sounds like to me what you've done is you've used a qualitative approach and this is how we want to approach this there's certain things that we want to see in a competition and then we're going to evaluate the team's overall performance based on how we did in these different factors of the game right that would be your approach and there's not really a right answer and this is a big challenge what but you're right on the money wins and losses may not be the best way to evaluate outcome because we do know that really good teams can play like crap and still win. In fact, any team can play like crap and still win. We also know that you can play lights out best, best performance ever. Just really, really show magical performance and still lose. We know that. So winning and losing is, is full of false positives and false negatives when it comes to performance. In some points, sports, you could use like margin of victory, and maybe that gets you a little bit closer. And that can trick you too, because what if you're um, a, a really good team and you're, you're at the top and you're playing the team that's at the bottom and say you win by four points for whatever sport it may be. But now what if you're that really good team and you play the team who's just right next below you and you'd win by four points? So is that outcome the same? Maybe not because when you only beat that really bad team who's been blown out by every other team and you only won by four, you may not perceive that as a great performance. So sometimes margin of victory or loss may not be the best indicator either. So what we've done in sports that have this, is we've actually used the um, odds keepers who 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 share odds and projected point spreads. So I, I don't know if um, what types of sports have that in other countries, but here, college men's basketball, um, all professional sports, college football, they Vegas will put out odds on point spreads, and we we tested the hypothesis and we basically aggregated. All, the project, the closing point spreads for every matchup in college football and college basketball, going back like twelve years, and so in college football that was about eight thousand games. College basketball, it was a lot more than that. I think maybe around thirty thousand games. Our hypothesis was that if you took the the proj- the closing point spread, the difference between that and the actual point spread of the game, that zero, meaning that Vegas got it right, would Happen more often than any other outcome and you would have a normal distribution. And it turns out that in college football that was true only it was a sawtooth because football has like you score in intervals of three and six you get an extra point. So you kind of score in intervals of, of three and seven but when you look at football multiples it's like they're like threes fours and sevens. So it was sawtooth where you had peaks at multiples of three, four, and seven, sort of. So it was a normal distribution, but it was it was a sawtooth. College basketball, zero was at the peak, plus and minus one, all the way down. It was a perfect smooth normal distribution. So that's one way that we've used to quantitatively assess outcome of perform just overall team performances, something we call the closing point spread differential. Um, Adam Petway, myself, and some others, we actually published a paper and that was an opportunity, and that that was an opportunity that I had to write about this method. Um, to, to full disclosure, we had an intern named Josh Little, and he and I worked on this when he was interning with me uh, at University of Utah, and we actually published. We attempted to publish a paper on this method, and uh, the manuscript, the 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 publisher, the um, the journal rejected our paper. They said it was too. It was too elementary for the level of analytics that they have in their journal. So we got rejected. But when Dr. Petway came along, he wanted to look at practice volumes in match day minus one and match day minus two. And he needed a, a, a good outcome measure. So I had an opportunity to, to write that little portion into that. And we actually found some findings that when in a college basketball team across three years, when they had greater volume match day minus one and match day minus two, like practices were longer their closing point spread differential was lower and that was statistically significant. So it was it was kind of cool to apply that in the actual research. Unfortunately though, Rob, not every sport has that. Not every sport has odds that come out ahead of time. So it becomes a lot trickier. And quite frankly, the way we do it here uh, at my current institution and the way I did it with some of those sports at University of Utah. So we just asked the coach, why don't you have three ratings? team performed well, team performed on average, on par, you know, average at best, or they just performed really poorly. And that's how we've we've done it. And we've done analytics looking at coach perception of performance, team performance, versus more quantitative methods. And we find out that they actually match up pretty well. Coaches do actually know what they're talking about sometimes. So that's because that's our current state of the art. It is what it is, but that's what we're doing to be fully transparent.
1: It's good to know that coaches do know what they're doing, Ernie. I had no, I had no doubt that they did, but I trust you. If you say they know what they're doing, they know what they're doing.
0: Well, I, I'll give you an example on opponent strength, and because you run into the same problem with opponent strength too. Josh, the person I mentioned, he uh, he did a, a massive machine learning algorithm to estimate opponent strength in college football, and then I went around the the building. And I just surveyed about maybe 12 or 15 people. I don't remember how many, but I just surveyed everyone and I averaged all their, their rankings together. I just asked them, rank all of our opponents from 1 to 12. We have 12 opponents, 12 being the the most formidable opponent and one being the worst or vice versa. And I averaged those together and like it nearly perfectly correlated with the machine learning. So we got rid of the machine learning and we just started surveying people. Now, a real-life example, and we may actually publish this, I, we, with that sport I mentioned here at Louisville, preseason, the coach, the, the coaching staff ranked their opponents and, and they came up with a category of three. So a tough opponent, meaning like the odds are stacked against you. Most like, most likely they're going to be the favorite team. A moderate opponent, which means it's a toss. 50-50 is going to be a tough match. And then a must win means you just better not lose because the odds are in your favor. We played the whole season, and we only have one season to, to use, but we played the whole season, and then we looked at wins and losses, and we looked at margin of win or loss among the tough opponents. The tough opponents were the ones that were the odds are stacked against us. And guess what? We didn't win nearly as often. Our record was pretty poor against those opponents, and we're kind of a middle-of-the-run program for this sport, and our margin of loss was large, maybe negative seven points. And those moderate matches – our average was negative one point loss across all of those opponents. And then in those must wins, it was the opposite. We won just about every one. We may have won all of them, and we won by an average of seven to eight points. So this is pretty amazing that using fixed factors, you ask the coach to rate their opponents two months before the season even starts, and they were spot on it was like they just knew exactly what how what what was going to happen and if you have coaches who are willing to be honest about that it's going to open up a lot of door for opportunity with your planning your strategic periodization
1: super 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 interesting ernie thank you for such a a detailed analysis on what's going on at at, at your place uh, right now but we've, we've 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 tipped over the hour. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. So thank you for, uh, thank you for sparing an hour for me, but where can people get to know more about you, more of what is going on at Louisville and anything that you've got business wise? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you can find me on social
0: media. It's all, it's all just Ernie Reimer on social media. So I'm not the best social media person, but Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn are probably the three main ones. And through those sources, you can identify uh, my other other links and feeds where you might be able to um, take advantage of some continuing education opportunities that uh, we offer uh, to the industry. And, and uh, ultimately, that's what we're here to do is we, we really just want to give back. So if you were to take a look at those, and and you'll see that uh, my software company is attached to that. and. Um, You can do internet searches and possibly see some presentations I've given, possibly even on strategic periodization, some of the topics we've discussed today. But uh, that stuff is out there. I've given presentations on these things. Those presentations have been videoed. So if you want to dive deeper into some of the things we've discussed, just uh, start with the internet or just reach directly out to me. Um, I'm pretty easy to reach. You can find my email on uh, gocards.com, which is where I work. So you can find my email there and my phone numbers should be on there too. So just reach out anytime you'd like.
1: Awesome. You're a kind you're a kind man, Ernie. Thank you very much for that. But I'll link to all the social media and stuff and, and all that kind of thing on the website. So um people can also also get that there. But thank you very much once again. Not only have you turned up for a round table and gave us your wisdom with JB, you've come on your own and um and graced us with uh, with your knowledge and experience. So thank you very much, Ernie. Look forward to keeping in touch and um, speak soon.
0: Likewise, thank you too, and thank you for everyone out there who's
1: listening. Thanks, Ernie. Thanks for tuning in to episode 440 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Ernie for coming on and joining me for a second time in the space of six weeks to have a little chat around sprint modelling. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Hydro, Play, kitman labs and rewire fitness for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys so i really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time